Well, as, as Dorman mentioned, I've been uh, hanging around, mostly around the periphery for a couple of years, and the Lord's been working in our lives, and it's been such a blessing just to have some contact with this congregation right here. And, and one thing I would like to point out in particular, I want to thank you for your website. That has been a real blessing to me the last couple of years. I've heard so many speakers um, so many messages about exchange. It's been a real source of um, the Lord's work. So thank you for doing that. Thank you guys who, who make all that happen. I know, Kent, you're involved with that, so I appreciate it. So many of you in this room have had the privilege of being associated with this congregation for many, many years, decades. I know some of you have been. And so you're far more experienced in understanding exchange than I am. Um, so perhaps my exchange story this morning will take you back a ways to when you were first learning about it. Uh, here's one thing I have found. Exchange is fairly easy to grasp at a surface level. Not always quite so obvious how to bring it into everyday life. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe I'm the only one that, that has had a little struggle there. And it's not because exchange is difficult in itself, because it's rather straightforward, But some of us, like myself particularly, we've built up a little bit more incorrect thinking than others. And it takes a while to undo that so that the the message of exchange, that amazing message, can sink in. And just in case someone is hearing the word exchange in this context for the first time, either here in the room or maybe hearing it later on a recording, what we're talking about is the very center of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing less than that. It's a very important subject, yet not always completely expounded, uh, unfortunately. So what I would like to do this morning is paint a picture for you of exchange in the form of an allegory. And I call this allegory the tale of two rooms. Now, what I need you to do this morning is imagine that on the platform behind me are two rooms side by side with a wall separating them. Room number one is over here on your left. Room number two is over here on your right. And I hope you appreciate the fact that no expense was spared on the props for this message this morning. In other words, I really need you to use your imaginations for this this morning. First thing I would like for you to notice about room number one is that it's very broken down looking. The ceiling is sagging. The, the paint is peeling everywhere. The whole place looks like it could just collapse at any moment. Now, the occupant of this room puts a fresh coat of paint on every now and then. But as you know, paint doesn't stick very well or very long to rotten wood. Also, the, paint, the, the room smells of decay. Uh, the place, uh, the smell got so bad one time that the occupant of this room got one of those fancy room deodorizers, you know, the kind you put smelly stuff in and plug it in the wall. But it turned out that was about as effective as a single spritz of fancy French perfume in a West Texas feedlot on a windy day. It just didn't quite, just didn't quite do the trick. Not only does this room look bad and smell bad, it even sounds bad. The whole place groans and creaks. In fact, when the occupant walks around in here, the floorboards sag sometimes so much he's afraid they're going to give way. There are a few places where there are little holes in the floor, and he sees a menacing red glow from far, far below. Naturally, he doesn't like to think about what might happen 
if these floorboards ever give way. Now, there are four objects in this room that I want to describe to you. The first object is right here, suspended somehow in midair, and it's a set of stone tablets. The stone tablets represent the law of God. We could say that quite literally the occupant of this room lives under the law. He's not sure how those tablets stay there. And oh, by the way, those tablets are the only thing in this room that show no signs of decay. They are just as perfect and as pristine as they ever were. Now, he can read what's written on them, but they're just out of reach. He's never quite been able to reach them. Even when he puts a chair here and stands up, the tablet somehow remained just out of his reach. One day he thought he had a really good idea. He stacked up all his commentaries that talk about how to do the law, stood on those, and the tablets were still out of reach. Rather odd how that works. The second object in this room is back over here in this far left corner, and it's a bathtub. The odd thing about this bathtub is the water's running all the time. The water looks kind of dirty and it doesn't smell very good. That's part of what contributes to the smell of the room. But at least it drains out about as fast as it comes in, so at least it doesn't get all over the floor. The third object in this room, right here by the wall, it's on a little stand. From where you are, it may look just like a chunk of rock. But where I am, I can see that it, it is rock. But it's in the size and shape of a human heart. Looks a little bit like granite to me, but then again, I'm no geologist. One thing I do know, whatever it's made of, it is very, very hard and unyielding. This stone heart represents the heart of the occupant of this room. In other words, he has a heart of stone. Now, the last thing in this room I want to point out to you is a sign on the wall right here by the stone heart. And the sign reads, all who pass through this door must die. Well, that sign has always been there. And the occupant of the the room has always wondered about it. For one thing, there's no door here. There's no sign of an opening, no hinges, no doorknob. So that didn't make sense. The other thing, whoever painted the sign must have made a mistake because when he wrote, all who pass through this door must die, he put a capital D in the word door as though it's referring to a person. So nothing makes sense about that sign, and he long ago gave up trying to figure it out. One last thing about room number one, four walls, no door. So how did the occupant get in here? Well, I'll tell you, he was born in here. Many people are born, live their lives, and die in rooms just like this. And you might wonder, well, if they can't get out of the room, how do they survive? Don't they have to get out and get food? Don't they have to go to work? Don't they have to go to school? Things like that. Yes, they do. And that brings up one of the more interesting features about rooms like this. They're portable. In fact, you might say these rooms are almost like something the occupant wears. So if the occupant goes to church or work, he's inside this room. If he goes someplace he's not supposed to go, he's inside this room. Wherever he goes, this room is with him. Now, since the room looks so run down and it smells of decay, you might think that our occupant here is a bad person. 
But that's not necessarily the case. Many occupants of rooms like this live very good lives, at least what the world would consider good. They're quick to donate time and money to good causes. They're quick to look for people that they can help, people in need. But the opposite is also true. There are many people that live in rooms like this who live very wicked lives. The point is, by looking at the room, you can't tell whether the person who lives in this room tends to behave morally or immorally most of the time. As it turns out, the occupant of this particular room desires to live a very moral life. He reads his Bible and he genuinely, genuinely wants to please God. That's pretty amazing, don't you think, considering he has a heart of stone? Well, he lived here for several years before he paid much attention to those stone tablets. But now things are different. He has a strong, burning desire to do what's written on those tablets. He heard about a church in his neighborhood called First Church Under the Law. Well, he thought that was a little more than coincidental, considering that he quite literally lives under the law. So he went to First Church Under the Law one day just to kind of check them out. And he met some people there who said, you better do everything that's written on those stone tablets or else your floorboards will give way. They also said that doing the things written on those tablets is called producing fruit. And Buster, you had better get busy producing some fruit. Well, his timing could not have been better because their month-long course on fruit production for beginners was just about to start. He signed up for that class, determined to be the best, the best fruit producer they had ever seen. Perhaps you can identify with that. After he took that class, he signed up for the advanced class to develop his skills even further. Well, the fruit production techniques he learned took a lot of work and a lot of practice. He was very diligent about that. But he was hoping that at least God would be happy with him for at least trying. And he hoped that his sincere efforts to do what was written on those tablets might help clean the place up a little bit. And what he was really hoping is maybe that awful smell would go away. But you know what? As soon as he started his first serious project on carving artificial fruit, the most amazing thing happened. The bathtub water started to come out even faster. And it was dirtier and smellier than before. It was exactly the opposite of what he was expecting to happen. He quickly realized that the harder he tried to do what the law said and produce that fruit, the worse his bathtub problem got. One day it got so bad that the bathtub began to overflow and spill that putrid water all over the floor. He ran and got his mop. He mopped and mopped and he mopped as fast as he could. But no matter how hard he tried, he could not keep up with the overflow of water from that bathtub. Once again, his timing was perfect. First church under the law was offering mopping classes. Now, he was... A, <laughs> He was especially excited when he got to the advanced mopping class <laughs> because in that class you are eligible for the group discount on the Acme Super Mop Plus. Now the ASM Plus, as they called it, is an invention of pure genius. 
Not only does it let the mopper mop with great efficiency, but it uses the motion. It has a special attachment that uses the motion of the mop to carve artificial fruit as you're mopping. What a time saver. You can clean up your mess and produce fruit all at the same time. At least that was the Acme promise. As it turns out, though, the harder he worked, the worse his problem got. Well, since he knew that there was a direct connection between his bathtub problem and his effort to keep the law, he began to wish that those stone tablets would just go away. But they did not go away. In fact, he read in his Bible where Jesus himself said, as long as heaven and earth remain, every letter in that law will remain. So what was he to do? Just work and work and mop every day for the rest of his life until the floorboards gave way and, well, you know, not a pretty picture. Let's leave our occupant for a moment and take a look at room number two. Room number two could not be any more different from room number one. Whereas room number one looks like it is old and passing away, Room number two looks as though it is newly created. In the innermost part of room number two is the most beautiful vine in the world. This vine is alive like any normal vine would be, but it seems to be even more alive than that. In fact, there's something about it. It just seems to be the very source of life itself. What's more, this vine has an opening in it, and out of that opening gush forth rivers of the most refreshing and pure water you can even imagine. In fact, these living waters that come out of it purify everything they touch. So everything in room number two is just as clean and pure and fresh all the time. Don't you know our occupant from room number one? would love to be over here. Well, let's go check on him, see how things are going. Oh, my. He's getting desperate. He's so sick of the filth, and quite frankly, he's feeling a little bit guilty about some bad thoughts he's having about the law right now. Um, He knows the law is good. It's God's word. But it just stays there, suspended in midair, staring at him. Or at least he's come to think it's staring at him. All day long, it reminds him of everything that's wrong in his life. But it does not do one thing to help him improve. Oh, how he wants to change. He really wants to change. But the harder he tries to change, the harder he tries to manage his behavior and his sin, and the harder he tries to produce his own fruit, the worse all of his problems get. He decided to read his Bible again because he knows somewhere in there is some good news. This time he decided he was going to read more carefully than he had ever read so that he did not miss a thing. One day as he was reading in the book of Isaiah, he found this verse in chapter 64. All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And he thought, well, if my righteous acts are like filthy rags or filthy water in my case, (laughs) then it's no wonder that the bathtub water got dirtier and smellier the harder I tried to be righteous. But that's not good news. 
if my righteous acts are like filthy rags, then what am I to do? There seemed to be no answer for him, but he kept on reading. A few days later, he got to the book of Jeremiah and was reading in chapter 17. And there he read, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He read that one again. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The heart. He looked over at that stone heart and he realized for the first time in his life that that heart represented his heart. Well, he started to get excited about this, but then he realized, wait, that doesn't help. He did realize that the law was not the problem. The law told him what his problem was. It was his heart. But that didn't help him. He can't change his heart. So he thought, the further I read, the worse it gets. What am I to do? Fortunately, he kept reading. One day, he found these verses in Ezekiel 36, where God said, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Finally, he knew he had his answer right there. This was the verse he had been looking for to get rid of that old stone heart. And he just fell on his knees and he cried out, God, please, please give me this new heart. Well, at that moment, he realized there was a door on this wall. The door was now standing open and a man was standing in the doorway. The man's face and robe shone so brightly it was almost painful to look at him. The man's hands and feet were terribly scarred, but in his hands he held a living beating heart of flesh. Well, the man beckoned our occupant to come to him, and he said, No, I can't go through that door. If I go through that door, I have to die. And the man said, Yes, I am the door, and yes, you must die, but I will give you new life. That's when our, and he held out the beating heart to this man. That's when our occupant noticed that this beating heart had words engraved all over it. Words like, loving the Lord your God with all your heart. Loving your neighbor as yourself. He said, I can't do those. I've tried to do all those things that those tablets say, and it just makes it worse. And he said, that's right, you can't. That old stone heart of yours can never submit to the things of God. That's why you need a new heart. You have to have a new heart. That's why I came to earth, kept all these instructions perfectly so that I could exchange your sin for my righteousness, your heart for mine. The man continued. He said, you remember when you were reading in Isaiah 53 and you you learned about how I bore your pains and your sicknesses and you saw how people thought I was being punished for my own sins when in fact it was your sins that I took upon myself. On the cross, I paid for your salvation. By the stripes on my back at the whipping post, I paid for your healing. What you need to do now is repent. And that simply means think differently. Think differently about your old life of self-effort. Think differently about your efforts to produce the fruit that God demands. And now receive what I've already done for you. Well, our occupant was speechless. 
he decided there probably were no words in existence that would explain how he was feeling at that moment. What happened next was nothing short of a miracle. In a moment, we might say in the twinkling of an eye, this man exchanged the occupant's heart of stone for that beating heart of flesh. He exchanged the occupant's filthy clothes for his own shining robe of righteousness. And he delivered him from room number one, the walking in the flesh room, to room number two, the walking in the spirit room. While our occupant was so overcome by what had just happened, he just fell on his face at the man's feet, sobbing and praising the Lord, thanking him for this wonderful gift. After a few moments, he he pulled himself together and he stood to his feet, still a little bit wobbly. And when he did that, he kind of braced himself against the vine that was in the innermost part of the room. The instant he touched that vine with this hand, something materialized in this hand. He looked down and was stunned to see the most beautiful piece of fruit he had ever seen. This one was far more beautiful than anything he had ever been able to carve or produce on his own. In fact, this piece of fruit was perfect in every way. And on it were the words, loving the Lord your God with all your heart. He handed it to the man who smiled broadly and said, See, you're already loving God without even trying now. You remember how hard you tried to love me when you lived over here? But now that you see how much I love you and what I've already accomplished for you, loving me is just going to come naturally for you. The man touched the vine again. Another piece of fruit. This one said, loving your neighbor as yourself. The man said to him, now go find joy in giving that one away. He said, you see how this works? As long as you stay connected to the vine, you don't have to produce fruit anymore. The life of the vine is going to flow through you and you will just naturally bear fruit. Well, our occupant was so happy, he ran as fast as he could down to First Church Under the Law to tell them this wonderful news. Well, he got there right in the middle of a lecture called How to Supercharge Your Fruit Production Through Tithing. He, he interrupted the lecture. He interrupted the lecture and excitedly told everybody the good news of what had just happened to him. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we've heard about that sort of thing. And to think after all we've invested in you, you've gone and turned into one of those anti-law hyper grace people. But that's no good. You can't take credit for a piece of fruit that just shows up in your hand when you didn't lift a finger to produce it. Why would God be happy with that? Well, needless to say, he did not convince them. But unfortunately, as he walked home slowly, he began to think, maybe this is too good to be true. Why should God be pleased with the gift that I give him that I didn't even work for? Surely I'm supposed to be putting out some kind of effort. And sad to say, our occupant went back from room number two over to room number one for a while. He went back to living under the law. He went back to fruitless attempts to please God by using the law, to have God love him more or bless him more by living under the law. You know, over there, he found it was so tiring to love God. He just didn't seem to have the energy for it. 
anymore. And how quickly he had forgotten that when he lived over there, he had almost no resistance to temptation. And funny, for his whole life, he thought that giving in to temptation was just natural. But now he realized when he succumbed to those temptations, it was more because they had just become old habits over the years and not because he enjoyed them like he used to. He realized he was a different person and those old habits just didn't seem to fit him anymore. As he thought how completely his desires had changed, the Lord graciously brought him back to room number two. Well, brothers and sisters, for now at least, that's the end of the allegory of the two rooms. But it's not the end of the reality of the two rooms that you and I live every day. So I'd like to take just a few more minutes to look at some practical applications of this and some points about the two rooms. The first point, who is this occupant we've been talking about? By now you realize it's you, it's me, it's all of us. We're born into these rooms. Uh, also, the, about the names of the two rooms, uh, room number one I call the walking in the flesh room. It could also be called the room of self-effort, the room of man's righteousness, which is really no righteousness at all. Uh, it could be called the old man. The scripture often calls it the old man. It's the room where the law of sin and death operates. It's the room of walking by sight. Room number two, the walking in the spirit room, is the new creation room. I like that term. It's the room of God's righteousness, not man's righteousness. It's the new man room. It's the room where the law of spirit and life is in operation. It's the room of walking by faith. Also notice, very important to notice this, room number two is not just a cleaned up, dressed up version of room number one. God did not send his son to die for us so we could get a fresh coat of paint and some perfume to try to conceal the corruption that we inherited from our ancestor, Adam. That old man can never be fixed. Jesus didn't come to fix our old man. He came to kill him, crucify him. He came to start an entirely new race. And that's why the Bible sometimes refers to Jesus as the last Adam. Male and female humans are able to produce a descendant of the first Adam. Only the Spirit of God is able to produce a descendant of the last Adam. And uh, some other points about the allegory. I'm sure you notice the difference between fruit production, man's effort, versus fruit bearing. Likewise, over here, the occupant was living for God. He was trying hard to live for God. Over here, he was living from God. God's life flowing through him. In room number one, life is all about us. It's what I have to do. It's what I have to avoid doing. It's how I have to do everything exactly right at exactly the right time if I expect God to bless me at all. In room number two, it's all about him and what he has already done. It's about his honor and his glory and his provision. Maybe once or twice you've heard Dorman say, we live by the life of another. And it's very clear in room number two that we live by the life of Jesus. Galatians 2.20, classic verse on that subject. 
But we also have to recognize in room number one, our occupant is living by the life of another. The problem is it's the life of old Adam, his old ancestor. So you see, we human beings really don't have a choice as to whether we're going to live by the life of another or not. Our choice is whose life are we going to live by? The old Adam, the way we're born, which is the way into death when the floorboards give way. (laughs) And it's the way of death every moment the person is living on this earth, by the way. Or the life of the second Adam, which is the way of life, everlasting life. Before the doorway to room two opened uh, for the first time, the man in room one was living according to his nature. He was just doing the things that came naturally. And earlier I said that some people who live in those rooms tend to behave morally and some immorally. The point there is both of them are living out of the life of the first Adam. They are partaking of the tree of the knowledge of evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's good from a worldly standpoint and evil that comes out of that tree. So we have to keep that in mind over here. It's living out of the tree of life. Now, how does this allegory, the tale of two rooms, align with Scripture? In a moment, I'm going to read just a few short passages of Scripture. And as I read them, see if they might strike you just a little bit differently now that you have heard this allegory. But I would propose that the entire New Testament is talking about the two rooms. The entire New Testament in one way or another. Uh, I think Paul wrote to the entire book of Galatians to people who had been in room number one, had been delivered to room number two, and then went back thinking, if I'm going to please God, I've got to go under the law. And so that doorway was open for them. They just chose to live over here. And we can do the same. I believe um, the first eight chapters of Romans are about the two rooms, particularly Romans 5 through 8 are about the two rooms. And Romans 7 in particular seems to be about Paul's own early struggle with the pull that room number one still had on his life. Remember, he was a Jew of the Jews of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, all those things. He was proud of his roots. And, and it took a while for that to kind of dry up and not have the same pull on his life. Second Peter 1 talks about how believers over here, connected to the vine, are partakers of God's own nature. So I think all the New Testament talks about the two rooms. Let me just give you a few brief passages uh, in particular. Romans 3.20 through 21a. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Isn't that exactly what happened to our guy over here? It reminded him all day long of how he was falling short. That's the ministry of the law. It makes us aware of our sin, but it does nothing to help us get rid of it. Uh, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. No stone tablets over here in this room. Romans 6.14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, if we find that sin tends to have dominion over us, then that's a sure sign we're living over here in room number one. Either because the door has not yet opened for our salvation, or it has, but we are just over here for whatever reason. 
Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you have become dead to the law. Very much alive over here, but dead to the law over here. Through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Why? So that we should bear fruit to God. This verse tells us that fruit bearing comes only after we have died to the law. Dying to the law happens only when we connect to the vine. Romans 8, 8 simply tells us those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. That's why we have to stay connected. I love Philippians 2.3. It's God who works, 2.13, excuse me. It's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Gives us the will to do it and the ability to do it. And then no discussion on exchange would be complete without the classic passage on exchange, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. And I'm going to use the word exchange, which is a legitimate translation from the Greek. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has exchanged us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of exchange. That's our ministry, each and every one of us. That is, that God was in Christ exchanging the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of exchange. Now, in conclusion, just a couple of how-tos. How, how do we actually go and live this out? Let me uh, turn here. The first thing I'd like to mention is we need to realize that the new life starts as a seed. And as with any seed, it takes a while for that thing to germinate and pop up above the ground where it can be seen. For a while, you really can't see it and might wonder if it's really there. Jesus told many parables about what the kingdom is like. And among those, he said, it's like a mustard seed. Starts off tiny, becomes huge. It's like a little tiny bit of yeast in, in a lump of dough. It starts off tiny and it grows until it takes over the whole lump of dough. So we need to realize that if we're discouraged because exchange only seems like a theory to us and I'm just not seeing it in my life, um, a couple of things that could be wrong there, but one is we just need to remember it may take it a while to grow. But here's a point. As with any other plant, there are things we can do to nourish that plant or to poison that plant. If we read and listen to things that contain life, and if we hang around people that are speaking life and living this life, then that is going to nourish and hasten the growth of that plant. On the other hand, if we listen and read things that bring about doubt and fear or inflame earthly passions in us, or if we spend most of our time around people who are always talking death and sickness and doubt, that's going to stunt the growth of that exchange seed in the life. Now, the second point uh, in the last one I'd like to make as far as a how to, how do we actually do this uh, uh, in the moment of decision? And that might be dozens of times a day, maybe hundreds of times a day. In the moment of decision, we need to do four things. One, take every thought captive. Second Corinthians 10, 5. If it's not of God, we don't see it in his word. Take it captive. Tell it to go. Be done with it. 
Don't entertain the thought. Don't develop it into a plant that then might take over your other plant. Just take it captive. Secondly, and I heard a guy say this just last week, uh, Jerry, at the men's meeting, you encouraged me to attend. A guy said, in the moment of decision, go with the fruit of the spirit. Someone's just offended you. You want to lash out in anger, love, joy. Let's say I don't see anger in that list. Go with love. If you go with the spirit, all of heaven is there to back you up. If you go with I really would feel better, I think, if I lashed out at this guy and told him what I thought. Then you'll then you're on your own and you'll deal those consequences over time. Go with the fruit of the spirit in the moment of decision. Realize that as long as you're in the new man room, you are constantly being cleansed by those rivers of living water. So Wayne Niffin likes to say, it's okay to acknowledge facts. Just make sure you confess the truth. It's okay to acknowledge, I just sinned, but confess the truth. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Don't go over here and say, oh man, I failed again. So now what am I going to do to work my way back over here? That's living under the law. That's not living an exchange life. And then the fourth thing, in the moment of decision, put on the new man and put off the old. You find those phrases in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. Remember that before the door to room number two opened up, the guy in room number one didn't have an option to put off the old man or to put on the new. The old man is all he had to wear. He couldn't take it off. We, however, redeemed of the Savior... We have an option. We need to put on the new man, live by the fruit of the Spirit, and those things I just mentioned, and leave that one off. Just don't go put it back on again. Well, I hope this has been helpful to you this morning. Um, I would have to characterize my own level of understanding of exchange right now to be at the college level. Now, you may think, well, who does he think he is? At the college level, having an understanding of exchange at the college level is a long way from where I want to be, which is to be able to understand exchange at the level of a kindergartner. We must come to him as a little child. And if I live long enough and God grants it to me someday, Lord, may I understand exchange at the level of the infant who's simply resting in its parents' arms without a doubt of their desire or ability to take care of its every need and without even a thought that it needs to perform in some way to ensure its parents' love. Let's pray. Thank you for this wonderful gift, Father. This wonderful gift of exchange. Thank you for delivering me from that room of self-effort where I can now just rest in you. There's no greater gift, and we thank you for it. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.